0: And welcome to Fiber Hooligan. For the next hour or so, I'd like to invite you to grab your cup of coffee, tea, or caffeine-free A&W Diet Root Beer, if that's your beverage of choice, and settle in for the seventh episode of the return of Fiber Hooligan. For those of you who are wondering who the heck I am, I am your host, Benjamin Levisay. I am also the CEO of XRX, home of XRX Books and Stitches Expos. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm broadcasting live from my home in Harrisburg, South Dakota. If you are tuning in for the first time, Fiber Hooligan is a podcast dedicated to bring you interviews with the best of the fiber arts and makers world, including experts, business people, and designers in the crafts of knitting, crochet, spinning, dyeing, weaving, sewing, quilting, embroidery, as well as anything else I think is interesting. And today, we actually get that anything else that I think is interesting thrown in there. I want to welcome the new listeners today. (coughs) Thank you for tuning in and trying out the show. I hope you enjoy it. I can't wait for us to get to know each other better. And of course, I'd like to welcome back our Fiber Hooligan listeners who used to listen, tune into the original show many, many years ago. Your ongoing support means so very much to me. Hey, I wanna make a quick note here. I'm sure many people will not be listening to the show today, but the show is being broadcast on Memorial Day. Um, I'd like to wish you all a happy Memorial Day, safe and happy with, uh, with family um just i would ask uh, you know as you're enjoying yourselves today uh try to remember what the day is about and that's all i'll say guest today is charan sachar from creative with clay charan's pronouns are he and him and if you've been to stitches west in the past couple of years you might have met him and seen his wonderful work firsthand charan lived in India for a significant part of his life where his mother ran a boutique designing clothes for brides and bridesmaids. The designs, colors, fabrics, and embroidery he came across then have a strong impact on his work now. In 2014, Charan took up knitting as a hobby and very soon the knit pattern started making an appearance into his work. Very soon after that, he purchased a floor loom and a spinning wheel. Now he obsesses over dyeing fiber and is fascinated about color, mixing, and different spinning techniques, which change the appearance of the final yarn. The transformation of fiber to yarn and yarn to fabric inspires him further regarding the textures and colors in his pottery. He uses a combination of techniques such as wheel throwing, extrusions, slab constructions, and alterations to create his forms. Each piece is then further decorated with textures he creates to give it a feel of embroidered and knitted fabric these are further enhanced with the underglaze glazes slip and the glazes that he formulates to add beauty and functionality to the pieces in 2011 charon quit his full-time 12-year his job of 12 years as a software engineer to pursue his passion with clay pottery has given him the much needed respite from the monotony of everyday life his story and work have been featured in the new york times hg tv several knitting magazines such as vogue and Noro. Uh, and tiny fiber studio i i read that that was pretty great his goal is to continue to work with his medium to create artwork that can be cherished for life charan is amazingly creative and he is delighted delight to talk to you. so i'm so pleased that we could book him on the show today charan joins us today from his home studio in federal way washington good morning charan and welcome to the show
1: good morning benjamin
0: how are you I'm very, very well. It's a little rainy here today. How about there?
1: Yeah, it's uh, raining out here, too. It's a typical northwest weather. Here. <laughs> we had a beautiful day yesterday. I
0: even managed to get outside and do a little barbecuing, which first time of the year. So that, that was kind of fun. But uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a gloomy day. It just started drizzling. No, no bike rides today. No bike lanes, yeah.
1: The barbecue nope. is tradition, I guess,
0: for this long weekend, though. So. Yes, it is. It is, although, you know, not, not the big ones. You know, it's hard to have all the whole neighborhood over for a barbecue when we're all trying to be good people and do the social distancing thing. But so there's smaller groups, right? Yeah. Which is nothing wrong with that. Yeah, smaller
1: groups just by yourself is fine. <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, we should get right into this interview. I, I mean, you you and I know each other, and, and we've had a pre-interview, and I know a lot about your story, but your story is something that I'm very excited to share with the Fiber Hooligan listeners. So let's start with just that. Please tell us your story. Let's start sort of at the beginning. You as a young man in India.
1: Uh, young man in India. Uh, I'll go further back, maybe because I was actually not born in India, where many people think I was. I was actually born in Kuwait, and we moved to India only after the Gulf War. And but even in Kuwait, we kind of lived in India because it's very different uh, compared to living in another foreign country, like. We all went to the Indian school. We went to the Indian grocery. Every in our building, everyone in our building was Indian. We interacted with only Indians, so it didn't feel like we were living in a foreign country, really. And uh, three months of the year, we were in India for our summer vacation, so um, it was a different environment. But uh, but yeah, after that, when we moved to India, is uh, it was. It was a little different than what I was expecting mm-hmm. India to be as well. I got a culture shock myself, being Indian. All right. So, so with, but you, then we moved to oh, India Please. and then, yeah. So uh, so in India, it was uh, you know, the uh, actual like public transport was very different than what I was used to and then, but what India also provided me was this freedom with which I could pursue more creative things. And um, like in Kuwait, uh, the weather used to be so hot outside, especially in the summer. So we used to stay indoors. Uh, in India, it was nice. You could get outdoors. Plus, there were a lot of opportunities to learn certain things. Uh, in school in Kuwait, we were so restricted to, you know, your education and all you studied. Um, So I, from the very beginning, had kind of tend to be more of a self-learner. I used to read a lot, uh, try to figure out how to do things by myself, uh, read about techniques and books about, even if it was stuff like painting and things like that, I just kind of read about it. You know, we didn't have YouTube back then to teach us everything. So, um, so yeah, I kind of landed up being a little bit of a self-learner from the very beginning. And uh, coming to India, I got some more opportunities. I had so many cousins who were very creative. So we, you know, cooked together. We did arts and crafts together. But, again, the main focus was always education, you know, get your engineering degree and all of that. So that's how it continued.
0: Well, and and you did get your master's degree
1: eventually. Yes, I did. So I did my bachelor's in electrical engineering in India, and then I moved to the US in '98 to pursue my master's in computer science. So focus was always get educated. <laughs> That's what my parents kept pushing for. <laughs>
0: Well, speaking of your parents, your mom had a dressmaking and embroidery shop in India, and I think that had uh, an effect on
1: Yeah, so uh, when we moved to uh, uh, India after the Gulf War, so she uh, used to teach in India, but her side of the family in Mumbai had been in the fabric industry with, uh, you know, preparing clothes for brides, and all of that. And uh, they had bigger shops in the city, but uh, we were more in the suburbs. So she opened her own boutique when uh, we moved to India. And uh, it was during those times is when I, you know, got that first influence of fabric all around me. It was, uh, you know, colors and embroidery, the textures and patterns and uh, the the fabric and uh, embroidery and just the surface decoration techniques on fabric are so different all throughout India Uh, like you know there are certain kinds of embroidery, certain kinds of dyeing techniques which are done in only certain areas Um, like all the gold weaving that's done on saris was done in the south and so there is all this different techniques and we being in Mumbai which is you know pretty much a hub for everything else. Uh, She would get fabrics from different places. She would get her embroiders from different places. And all of that would kind of, you know, change the kind of work it produced in the main city. And then it was like a perfect blend for, you know, brides and bridesmaids to get something completely unique and one of a kind. So that was a very fascinating kind of see that. And uh, she was always kind of forced me to come help her in the shop. And I would occasionally, but I couldn't deal with brides and bridesmaids. Like, you know, we have a fair share of bridezillas in India as well. So I just never (laughs) got into the business of, oh, let me help you in the shop. I was like, I used to come there, suggest colors and stuff and Oh, guys used to get so upset when it wasn't the right shade of pink. So (laughs) I can't deal with that. Well,
0: uh, you know, I'm sure you were as good with color then as you are now. So, you know, they're lost. I'm sure you were, because you're very good with color. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. When and, and why did you eventually move from India to the
1: United States? Uh, I moved in '98, and uh, so I had completed my bachelor's in engineering. And after I did that, I uh, most of my friends at that time, you know, in the U.S., the IT was becoming, you know, the big boom. Silicon Valley was huge, and everyone was graduating and coming to the U.S. right away. I still wasn't sure if that's the path I wanted to take because. I was, you know, I always had the creative side in my head that I wanted to do something else. And um, so during my engineering days as well, I was actually learning how to bake. Uh, And I used to bake cakes, uh, you know, first just for fun. But then later I realized that actually not, uh, like there were a few bakeries there and they had very limited selections of the kind of cakes you could get. And then very soon, friends and families started to place orders for cakes for parties and things like that. So I started making these overly decorated speciality cakes, um, cakes that would look like cricket fields and merry-go-rounds and all kinds of crazy stuff. And it was more about applying my engineering brain as to how do I make something which is, uh, you know, um, functionally strong, like a merry-go-round cake, you know, and, uh, like, how do I construct the whole thing so that the cake doesn't fall apart? But at the same time, it being edible and delicious. So all those influences kind of, you know, uh, helped me kind of create. So I was actually more inclined to pursuing that field, but... uh, my parents, obviously, my, my dad mostly was, you know, just like, but you're an engineer. Why are you doing this? So <laughs> he, it was his dream, too, to do his master's at some point, to come to the U.S. and do that. So he just kept pushing for me to do that. And, and I also always kind of consider that, yeah, these things are good as a hobby, uh, or I could do this when I retire and stuff, but it's kind of nice to do this on the side. But yeah, I need to pursue my education and all of that. So I, you know, gave my GRE and all of that, applied to universities here, and uh, I had to do my master's program in computer science. So that was now, like the big thing at that time. Now, I think it during that time,
0: uh, I think it was during that time when you, were, when you were working on your master's or maybe even completing your master's, that's when you started knitting. Is that, is that correct?
1: Uh, No, I uh, started knitting only a few years back in 2014 or so. Um, Knitting came a lot later in my life. Uh, For me, pottery came first in 2000. That was actually when I just graduated from my master's program and came to Washington for my full-time job. Okay.
0: Okay. In 2000, you took your first pottery class. You never had done it before. Yes. And so, yeah. so tell me, was it was it was it uh, was it just instant love, or did did you have to really go back and think about it?
1: It it was instant love. So it, what had happened when I was back in India as well? I wanted to learn how to make. So uh, it was uh, like there were no um, you know proper curriculums or uh, places or studios where, you know, you could go and learn. Uh, I had to go into the slums of the city and uh, go sit with those people and ask them that, you know, hey, can you teach me how to make pots? And they just looked at me weird as like, why is a guy who came in a car want to come hang out with us and put his hand in dirt like they didn't get it? So all they did was they came in like five pounds of clay, and they said, here, you can go play with it. And I played with it, you know, for some time, and that was it. So I kind of wanted to work with clay, but just never got a chance in India. And then when I came here for my master's, I was busy. But when in 2000 I came to uh, the Seattle area, I said, okay, you know, I finally have my weekends free, so I'm going to go ahead and take a pottery class. And the first time I sat on the wheel, it was like instant love. Just um, the process of, you know, taking a lump of clay and making it into something was very fascinating. And I had, since I had no experience in clay, like I had not done clay in school. Like I speak to many, you know, customers who walk into my booth at shows here they, uh, you know, everyone comes and says like, "Oh, I did clay when I was in high school." Like I had no experience like that. Like I didn't know any terminology. I didn't know what firing meant. I didn't know what kilns meant. I didn't know what temperature things get fired. I didn't know what the term glazing meant. So, in 2000, I go for my first class and I actually sign up for the class, telling the instructor that I came here to make teapots because I was very fascinated with teapots. And she's like, well, we're going to learn to throw on the wheel and we're going to try to make a mug and we'll probably make an ashtray. But that's the way it starts. You don't make a teapot. But I was like, that seems like a waste of money. I, I signed up this class for making a teapot. Why would I want to make an ashtray? But uh, but I was very persuasive. It means I was you know, I said, okay, fine. I sat on the wheel. I, I made a mug in the first week of there. And then they taught me about, you know, oh, you fire it. And I said, oh, you have to cook this thing. And then when they said next week you're going to glaze it, I didn't know what they meant by glazing. And my instructor glazed my first few pieces. And I'm like, oh, that's what you mean. Like putting the color on it. So it was like a really learning experience. And within the first few four weeks or so i was there i did make my first teapot which was kind of a crazy teapot i still have it but uh, but i was i was completely hooked at that point with clay
0: now now it was it was 6 or 7 years ago that you quit your full time job to do this full time but while you were still doing the software thing and you about 15 years ago you started doing fine art shows uh with your yes yeah your craft, uh, what was the reception like? Because, you know, your stuff is unique. Let's put it that way. Very unique. All right.
1: So, um, so yeah, when I started making pots, uh, you know, I was at that time in an apartment. I used to rent a studio space. And uh, around that time in 2002, I actually I got married as well. And uh, we were living in an apartment, and my uh, studio space had shut down. So I was, uh, I still had a lot of pottery kept out there. I wasn't selling at that point; but it was all, you know, kept at home. And my wife was like, "Well, we have a small apartment. Why don't you try selling?" So then I started doing a few fine art shows, which I could do only on the weekends since I was still working full time at that point. And um, it was, uh, it was very fascinating as to how people received my work. For one thing in the Northwest, everything at that time, uh, you know, used to be pottery meant it was either blue. Uh, They they said if you want it to sell, make it blue. That's what the underlying rule was. Just make it blue. It'll sell. And um, I was more fascinated with warmer colors. I liked yellows and oranges and reds and, uh, you know, more Indian colors the saffron colors and uh, marigold colors and um uh, it was like it or it was gray or brown and when i came into the fine art shows trying to sell my work uh, it captured everyone's attention like right away because of the color factor and at that time my work was still thrown on the wheel so it looked like traditional round pots, but the decoration was very elaborate. The colors were really bright. And my botho- booth was, you know, really easily spotted in an aisle of many booths. They were like, oh, we have never seen pottery like this before. It was like the first comment which many said. And, um, you know, because they always consider pottery that, yeah, it's functional and everything. for, And they kind of felt my work was I said, oh, this looks decorative. It looks something they want to, you know, look, they want to touch because it was very textural and then it had all the color on it. So it was very well received from the very beginning. All
0: right. Well, so there you are doing these art shows, doing your regular job. You know, I'm sure you're very busy at this point uh, with all the things you have to do. And six or seven years into this you've got smart shows under your belt you decide that you're gonna quit your job and do this full-time i mean it it, and we've talked about this before you know this this goes also to your approach in the way you create your art you know you have no fear um about things i mean but i got to think you had a little trepidation about quitting a job seeing if you could be a potter full-time
1: a little bit yeah, there, there was that, and uh, so what had also happened was, since I was working full-time, um, you know, I was I was able to do only, like, maybe three shows or so in, a, in the entire year, because only a show which would let me set up on Friday and do a Saturday-Sunday show, or, you know, maybe I could take a day off here and there, or I would do, like, some kind of a show and a gallery where I could just send my work and do that. But I loved meeting people. Uh, So the only other way I could sell was online. And at that time, Etsy was new around 2006 or 2007. So I joined Etsy and started selling there. And very soon, there were more and more galleries which started approaching me uh, through Etsy and started asking me to sell my work through them. And um, I kind of kept shifting back and forth. I didn't know much about wholesale and how to sell in shops. But I felt that that could be one way for me to maybe work full-time and sell my work, uh, you know, because I didn't have to be in a gallery or a shop all the time. And I could do only so many fine art shows. So I kind of gave it a try in the beginning. And uh, I... I just, uh, I didn't do any trade shows as such. I did, I had a few gallery accounts, and then more and more galleries started approaching me. Uh, There were better fine art shows uh, where I got invited. And um, I, uh, you know, in the fine art shows, you have to jury in. So I used to send in an application thinking, oh, I'm never going to get selected. They have such amazing work out there. And, uh, I used to get selected and then I was like, okay, I really need to make a decision uh, because the galleries are asking for my work. I'm getting accepted in these really nice shows. And the online was also kind of taking off. So I tried to make that, I had to kind of jump in uh, and go like, okay, if I really need to see if I can take it somewhere, I need to give it my hundred percent, you know, just, working on the weekends or coming back from work and spending a few hours uh, making pottery and trying to do everything business-related is really not doing it justice. So it was, yeah, in 2011 is when I finally quit. And uh, also what was happening in the workplace, you know, the economy wasn't great in 2010, 2011. We were, like, at an all-time low. And uh, it was uh, it, it came as a shock to many people, including my parents. You know, who said, "In an economy like this, where people are struggling to keep their jobs, you're actually quitting your job to do something uh, like you know, selling artwork, uh, which was kind of uh, jumping into the deep end." But I felt comfortable doing it, and I wasn't happy uh, doing my work at, uh, you know, my programming work as a computer science engineer. And um, so I just kind of decided, I said, you know, let me give it a shot for a few years. Uh, My wife was very supportive of it. Uh, She knew how miserable I was at work. So she's like, you know, you need to give this 100% see where it goes and if in two years or whatever you know it doesn't do well and you really don't like it you always have your education and that was you know and you have this 12 years of experience uh you can find something else and uh maybe that would be better so i'm like okay let's just try it out so yeah i couldn't have done it if i didn't have support of my wife and you know Uh, that uh, support from galleries and my online customers and all the fine art shows kind of saying, okay, we want you to be at the show. So I kind of felt a positive response coming from many directions that made me feel a little bit more comfortable diving in.
0: Well, I'm glad you did, and of course, by then you're still not doing the 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 work that I've seen. You know, that's still a that's still a ways away. Oh. Because in, again, in 2014 you started knitting, and yes. from that I think you found yourself then weaving and then spinning and doing all kinds of things. Just super creative guy, and uh, you, you learn this stuff very fast. And I've seen your I've seen your knitted pieces, and uh, I saw you do a, an online thing uh, where you were sneaking, you know, and and that always just frightens me because, uh-huh. well, it, it frightens a lot of people, but again, you have that no fear thing. So, how did eventually, you know, the fiber arts that you were doing, how, how did they start to infiltrate, you know, your work in
1: pottery? Yeah, so, um, so like I said, in 2011, when I quit my full-time job, I was doing a lot of fine art shows. I was selling a lot to galleries. I started doing trade shows where uh, galleries would come and you know, place wholesale orders for their uh, shops and gift shops and touristy shops. So I uh, got very familiar with the business of doing these things, and I was busy all through the year. In the summer is when all the fine art shows used to be. And then in the winter, Christmas time is when I used to be shipping orders to all the uh, shops. And summertime also they wanted stuff. So it was kind of like an all-year-round busy schedule. Uh, what happened with that was uh, I am a one-person <laughs> you know, operation doing every aspect of the business. I was getting extremely exhausted. And I was at a show, and uh, one of my customers actually mentioned, she said, you know, you should take up knitting. And I was like, oh, maybe, I don't know. And I was actually complaining to her that, you know, my feet hurt because I work standing up and I cannot sit and work. And she's like, oh, you should sit and knit, and, you know, you can watch television while knitting. And I was complaining that, well, I cannot take clay work and, you know, watch television because it's messy. I can't take it to my living room. She's like, yeah, you can take yarn anywhere. You can drive. You can go in your car, and if you're waiting at the doctor's office, you can knit. And it kind of fascinated me that there was this kind of craft out there that, you know, I could kind of carry around with me it wasn't messy and uh, it takes time to do which I kind of liked about it that it's not very fast that I can spend time with it and there is no rush to complete it Uh, so there was that very weird fascination that oh this is kind of like this hobby or craft that can stay a hobby and craft I don't have to think of it like a business because with pottery it Uh, uh, you know since I have to look at it from a business perspective too I need to be working efficiently uh, you know making sure that my kiln is full uh, you know have good production uh, efficiently fire the kiln there was a lot of those aspects coming in but I felt like oh this would be like uh, how clay was before for me it was just a hobby so I can have knitting just as a hobby so that's how it started And um, very soon when I remember picking up needles and, you know, I knit my first square, uh, garter stitch square, and I was hooked so badly. I made a scarf right away. And then a friend of mine, she told me about, you know, oh, there are these different stitches. And she's like, in six months or so, I'll show you how to do a sweater. I couldn't wait. I went to Joanne's and got a sweater's quantities worth of yarn, and I knit my first sweater in the first month of knitting. And I still have that sweater. It fits me perfectly. So it's uh, it kind of started like all very quickly. That way, I just dove straight in again. And so this was also the very first time I was creating fabric by myself. Uh, Like I said, all the fabric textures and patterns in my work were very influenced by my mom's uh, embroidery work in her shop and all the Indian embroidery I saw in the Bollywood movies and all of it. But this was the very first time I was creating fabric by myself and just feeling the textures and the knit stitches in my hand. I was like, what if I created this texture on my pottery? Because... Um, I had seen like, you know, uh, knit uh, prints and stuff on commercial mugs and stuff on like Starbucks mugs. And I thought, no, I want my mugs to look hand knit, like how my mugs looked like they had embroidery on them. I said, I, I want that real hand knit texture on my mugs. So let me go about seeing if I can figure that out. And it took me close to almost a year or so to work towards that to make my very first net pattern on my work and uh, after that it just kind of you know went in a whole different direction after that
0: <laughs> well, you had fans you know right away i mean you know you know what knitters are like um you know that uh, yes. and your and your work is beautiful and the, and the colors are different there's so much there's so much to appreciate your work but you in 2018 uh you started uh Doing stitches with us, and you did a stitches West. Uh, I'm sure that was yes. a very different experience than the art shows. Um, but, yeah. but I got to ask,
1: what was the rea- what was the reaction
0: from people when they saw your work? Uh, it,
1: it was it was a great reaction. Like I had not experienced uh, fiber shows as such. Uh, like I had gone to a few fiber shows to you know purchase yarn uh, because that's you know I was like. I wanted yarn because I love to knit. And I saw, you know, a lot of customers, very loyal customers. And at the same time, I spotted a lot of customers of mine from the fine art shows. And uh, because and I realized they all were actually knitters or, you know, related to the fabric world. That's the reason why they liked my previous work. And now that I was doing these knit patterns, they pushed me that, oh, you know, you needed to be doing fiber festivals. So I'm like, okay, fine. And that's around when I uh, signed up for Stitches. And uh, the whole excitement of, you know, uh, the gates opening and this flood of people rushing in to <laughs> purchase yarn or whatever the next new thing is was very fascinating. Uh, the first year of course, you know, people didn't know me because my work was new. So I saw these people breeze by my booth and but it was interesting. Like they all had a pause in front of my booth. They're like, Is that knitting on a mug? And they're like, Oh, but I really need to go get this yarn, but I'm coming right back <laughs> and I heard that a lot and they all came back. And it was it was such a great experience doing stitches that first time. And um, I I had a really good show. And then there were a few other shows before that where some other vendors had purchased my work and uh, said, you know, let us sell, because those were shows I couldn't get into uh, because of the size of the shows. And they used to sell out of my work right away. So they are like, oh, on day one, we have sold out of all your pieces. So I said, okay, I definitely need to do more fiber shows. So... So, yeah then i did stitches and i believe that it was the next year at stitches that um i won the best pr or uh, best booth or something like that i can't even remember yeah you, exactly did, you what did the best you
0: yeah you did the best job of pr before the before and during the show we, i was we were watching you and you just did an amazing job
1: yeah, that that was very fascinating. I'd introduced a new texture pattern on my mug, which was the lace pattern, I believe. And um, it was that year when, you know, the doors opened and I had a line in front of my booth uh, of people wanting to buy the new lace mugs. And on preview day itself, I'd sold out of all the new mugs. And uh, so, yeah, that kind of experience, I haven't experienced in the fine art shows. In the fine art shows, it's a lot of, you know, you're set up outdoors. There are lots of people walking with families because the weather is nice. And then they look at artwork, and then they purchase something if they like it. Uh, at the fine art shows, it was like, no, I'm here because I want to buy your mark. <laughs> Coming right when the doors open. So that that's, that was an amazing experience, and it still is. I hope, uh, you know, when things get back to normal, <laughs> that is, it still remains just as amazing.
0: I think you have fans. You know, they just have to re- be reminded that you're out there. And I hope that a lot of people listen to this episode and, and then go up to your website because there's still some great stuff up there. But, you know, speaking of, you, you know, you won the, uh, the award because you did the best social media coverage before during, and, before and during the the show. So let's talk about your social media engagement because you really do engage. You have a robust Instagram following. And of course, I see you doing these days, especially live videos on Facebook sometimes it's knitting, sometimes it's pottery, sometimes it's uh it's spinning you, you know love your spinning ones. Um, yeah do you have a strategy for do you have a strategy for your engagement that that you can talk about?
1: Um, honestly, I don't uh, many people think I do i I honestly do what feels right to me well engaging to me at that time or what's fascinating me at that point. If, um, you know, if it is spinning that I'm doing, then I will post about spinning. If I have dyed some fiber and some yarn and I've knit something with it or I've made this unique yarn out of it, I want to share it with everyone and kind of want to tell them, see what I made. You know, It's, it's not a very direct influence as Uh, you know, it's not very thought of that, hey, see, I dyed this yarn, so now I'm going to make a mug with this color. I cannot think it all the way through that way. I kind of like the natural approach of uh, doing what I love to do at the moment, share what I'm doing, so that people can, you know, walk along that journey with me. They can see how things are progressing uh and later down the line uh how that would influence me there i cannot have process of let me do this fiber arts let me create something in play and then let let me connect the two um, if it's all thought of then you have kind of you know planned your entire life <laughs> right up front and it doesn't life doesn't occur that way right so uh, so for me, it's like more about sharing what my journey is, what my creative process is, as to what I'm doing right now. Uh, so right now, like if I'm dying and I'm spinning, that's what I'm sharing the most of. And some people come to my uh, Instagram page and they said, I thought you were a ceramic artist, but all I see is yarn and knitting and weaving sometimes, but there are such few posts about your pottery. And it's like when the pottery thing will happen, then you'll see a lot of posts about pottery. But right now, if uh, that's not happening, uh, like, you know, now it's kind of like that stage where I don't have an upcoming show right now, but I have all this time where I'm getting really fascinated with color and fiber, so you're going to see more of that. At some point, that might influence the what I create and play, and you'll get to see that at that point. Uh, so the whole uh, strategy of, you know, how many times to post or what to post or uh, how many times to do live feeds, uh, it's kind of hard for me to plan out things like that. Like now, uh, as you mentioned, that I've been doing live feeds. Uh, I have, you know set up a Patreon page as well. I have my website and so people can look at my work. They can, I have a YouTube channel where they can see my past live feeds. But at the same time, I have not kept a fixed schedule that I'm going to be posting, you know, I'm going to be live every day at 11 o'clock. I thought I would try to do that. I said no because I want to create when, you know, inspiration strikes or when I want to make something and I want to share with everyone what I'm doing, uh, it's very hard for to keep a schedule for something like that. Um, and I, uh, you know, so I go live when I'm excited about something I'm making and I want to share with everyone that, see, I'm going to attempt this. And most of my live videos have been like currently, especially it's with spinning and making pads and making art yarns. It's been more like, uh, I've not done this before. Uh, come join me live and let's see and why don't you give me suggestions as to what I should try and let's see if we can make something amazing. So it's been more like that. So people can realize that it takes time to learn these things and uh, they can be part of my journey really. So that's what I enjoy. Yeah, I you you've seen me.
0: I've popped into a few of, of your sessions. Um uh one of our people, Nathania, uh you know, she loves it when she sees you on spinning or something like that. She just she puts it on while she's working and she feels this overwhelming calm because you're very low key and 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 gracious when you share and there's not a lot of angst and there's creativity. So you should be commended on that. I think uh, you you let you've lightened her load at least once and I'm sure other people too once once or twice. So,
1: yeah and and that's what i like in this life it's to it's like you know uh talking to people uh they are kind of i'm inviting them into my studio uh i couldn't really do that much before i still cannot do that like because i have such a small studio space so in person if there are many people in my place and You know, I can't work. Uh, Thanks to live feeds and uh, camera setups and technology these days, I can invite so many people in my studio uh, at a time, and I can talk with them while I'm working. Uh, Being a solo artist and, you know, trying to run a business by yourself and working by yourself all the time is very boring. So it's kind of nice when I can talk to people while I work they can join me in the process. They give me ideas as to, you know, hey, you should try this and you should try that. Sometimes I listen. Sometimes I don't listen. I don't have to listen to every suggestion. But but I do enjoy the interaction a lot. And, um, and you know, it influences the work. It takes it into different directions. And uh, it, it's it's a very fascinating part of, the process and i think it's very essential too and that's the reason why even when i was you know doing wholesale uh even later on with you know yarn shops and you know i continued doing uh carried my wholesale work from galleries as such to yarn shops uh there were many of my friends from the fine arts you they're like since you're doing so much wholesale and trade shows are you going to stop doing fine art shows or you know in-person retail shows, and I was like, no, because I want to meet the real customer too. And uh, so, whether it's at shows or now at you know uh, live video cams or whatever, I still want to interact with people as much as possible. So this gives me the opportunity to do it.
0: Well, I think it's you being authentic, and I think that's what translates through. Yeah, well,
1: I I, I try. It's. Uh, it's easier, I think, to be authentic than trying to fake it because then you have to carry on with that fake story and then you forget what you said. So it's just easier to be authentic as to uh, if fiber and yarn and color is fascinating me right now, then that's what I can easily share about. I don't have to make up a story about something which is not interesting to me right now. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just I find it easier being authentic and just letting people in as to what's happening in my life.
0: Well, speaking of stories, um, you've been featured in uh, the New York Times, you've been featured on HGTV, uh, several news magazines such as Vogue and Noro. And, you know, I've even mm-hmm. uh, read the well-written article you wrote in Tiny Fiber Studio. Can can you talk to uh, us about some of those experiences
1: yeah so uh the first i think my uh press related thing that came out was the feature on home and garden television and um it was uh the very first time like you know me putting myself out there in public and uh it was uh i was I used to throw teapots like I told you I was very fascinated with teapots in the beginning and I used to make my teapots upside down on the wheel and there was just a complete crazy technique I used to use at that time and they were very hand built after being thrown and uh, so this was it was a TV show and called That's Clever and uh, so they came home did a five hour shoot on you know making me make a teapot from start to finish and then they edited it all down to like five minutes of a segment in their show, which was quite fascinating. Uh, and then, uh, so it was a good experience, uh, you know, going through that and kind of sharing uh, a process of how I make stuff, which, you know, over the years has now made me comfortable doing live videos and talking about my work, talking to customers. Uh the New York Times, I remember, that came about uh, mostly because I was writing my blog at that time and I had just quit my job in 2011 in January. And in August of 2011, is uh, when they wrote an article, they interviewed me, got a photographer to take pictures and all, and they talked about plan B careers. You know, plan A was like doing your or engineering or whatever, and then Plan B was doing something you love to do, and uh, so they wrote up an article about my work, and especially, it was that whole article was about, uh, you know, switching your careers at the time when the economy was not doing great. So that was an interesting read as well, but it uh, I used to write a lot on my blog at that time. Uh, Now, blogs have kind of become a thing of the past, I think. Uh, There are blogs I love to read, but I now find it very tedious to write up how I used to write blogs at one point because of the instant gratification of pictures on Instagram and Facebook. So I don't do blogs much, but that whole exercise kind of, uh, you know, gave me better ways of how to write about my work and how to even communicate about what I do with my customers, uh, with just friends or whoever just asked what I was doing or why I was doing what I was doing. So process really helped me communicate my uh, about my work to other people. And, uh, and yeah, then uh, when it came to writing articles you know for magazines uh most of the time i got approached like uh like how you approached me you know about you know let's talk because you sound fascinating and we had uh, had uh, meetups at stitches and things like that so it was more about being comfortable about talking about your work um and um uh, so then writing of these articles and uh, even the latest article in tiny fiber studio uh uh susie brown who's a writer I've, she's uh, based in uh, you know australia or new zealand i'm getting confused now but she's down south there so she contacted me through facebook and she's like i find your work very fascinating i would like to talk to you about how do you balance your life as a you know, as a fiber artist and a ceramic person at the same time. So it was all about talking about how I do things. And it's not, the article doesn't talk about this is the way to do it. It's more like what I have been doing and what I have been realizing all throughout. And I still don't know whether this is the right way or wrong way, but it's currently this is what's working for me. You mentioned earlier, it's about being authentic and, you know, talking about what you're doing and sharing your process i think that just makes it easier well your process is interesting because
0: you didn't really let go of that logical computer scientist mind um you know i happen to know through talking to you that you know you're in the process now of tracking color because color reacts differently in yarn and in fabric and on clay and 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 I understand you've got some quite extensive spreadsheets that you're tracking this and trying to figure out the deltas <laughs> and, those, and those kinds of things. Well, no, no I, I mean again, a lot of people keep diaries. You you keep a spreadsheet I, with values, and I I just think that's interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? I I think it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's um, I have been blamed about this even with my clay work actually. Uh, like when I started doing the fine art shows, you know, you meet other potters and other artists there and they used to come into my booth and talk to me about how I make my work and I used to discuss my process and they are like, you have a very engineering approach towards your pottery and now when I'm, you know, playing with fiber and tying fiber and colors, I get the same response from other indie dyers. They are like, who... Who would go through that much trouble? But uh, but I also know of many indie dyers who kind of follow my kind of process, and I'm very fascinated by them. Uh, one of them being Alana Wilcox, um, who's uh, written a book, A New Spin on Color, and she has some very interesting online courses on uh, just, um, uh, you know, how to organize and document your process. So, um, and I was kind of doing that already, but, you know, she had some more additional tips on how to organize an Excel spreadsheet to put it all together. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, The way I was doing was not as efficient. And, but, uh, you know, writing color formulas and dyes and which dyes I'm using. And I recently completed... Uh, dyeing the entire rainbow out of only three dyes. And people might think it's simple. Uh, Believe me, I've been working (coughs) throughout this quarantine period trying to do that. And um, it hasn't been easy because with paints, it's different. With the ceramic glazes that I've been used to, it's been different. And with dyes, it's been completely different because it's not as simple as mixing two colors and you get the third color because uh, the saturation of every dye is different, Uh, the percentage, the depth of shade that you use, the fiber that you use, whether it's superwash, whether it's not superwash, um, the dyeing technique you use, do you do kettle dyeing, do you do hand painting? It's like there are so many things which influence it throughout. And uh, so just getting a basic rainbow can be hard. And I created close to 150 shades of colors to finally figure out how to do my perfect rainbow. And um, if it wasn't for documenting um, everything, my process and my formulation, I don't think I could come to the conclusion that quickly. And because it's so well-documented, that I can create those 150 shades easily. I, If somebody tells me I want exactly that color, I said, okay, I can do exactly that color. And uh, it kind of comes from, I think, my engineering approach or my, you know, 12 years working in the IT industry of the way I documented stuff that I feel if I'm going to be testing and, you know, Trying these new techniques and creating these new colors, why not document it? Because if something is fascinating and something I really want to reproduce later, I don't want to go through this entire exercise all over again. If I just write it down once as to how I did it, I can create it again. So even if it is with dyeing color or even with spinning techniques um, like how I make a particular art yarn and you know, whether I do a two-ply or do a three-ply, do I do a spiral coil or anything, or how the fiber was prepped in order to make this art yarn, uh, it's like I document everything I can. And it's kind of, it comes naturally to me. Uh, I know some artists have that approach of, I'll just try anything, you know, and make amazing stuff. For me, I said, yeah, do that but also take notes on how you're doing it so that you can recreate it or just have it as a database for yourself. So that's been my approach most of the time. I I tend to document a lot of stuff that way. Well, I'm with you
0: on that. I tend to make lots of notes and and keep records of things so that I never have to redo something that I've done before. But I'm sure that these are the same people that you have been accused of playfully of a tendency to complicate everything. Uh, you know and and i, and I think it's yes. a criticism that you actually i think this is a criticism you actually enjoy and you think yeah that's
1: that's about right yeah and i i have been accused of that many times it's like uh even when it came to dyeing uh i remember that you know it's like I take a four ounce braid of fiber and put it in a dye pot and put some colors on and i like you know i remember the first time what I was doing I was like taking a piece of paper and writing it down. And I was with a friend of mine and they were like, uh, you know, if the color is turning out too green and you want it blue, just put a little blue dye. I said, yeah, but how much? And i you going to dilute it with water and then put it. Are you going to put citric acid before or after? And they're like, are you making it so complicated? Just, if you want it blue, just put some blue in. I said, yeah, but I really need to write it down and I want to know where exactly I'm doing it and at what stage am i doing it is the water warm or is the water cool down and and there it's like why do you have to complicate everything i said it's not complicating it it's just it, it it gives me a lot of satisfaction knowing exactly how i've done it so that and then even when i explain it to somebody i tend to complicate it a lot uh, like if they just ask me oh how did you dye this fiber I I can go through the entire process in as much detail as they want, and they're like, okay, I just wanted to know which dye you use. I just need to know your entire process. But uh, I've also come across people who enjoy that complicated process a lot because uh, it also goes to show the level of detail that has gone into creating what you create. Uh, so I don't see anything wrong with it. Uh, I just feel it is my approach of doing things. I tend to think a lot, uh, go through the entire process. Um, Even if I'm working with clay on a new piece or a new technique or a new texture on a mug, uh, I would have kind of thought of the process that, okay, if this doesn't work, I'm going to try it this way. And if this doesn't work, I'm going to try it this way. So there is some kind of a plan, but also I will play with along with it, but as I'm playing along with it and I keep learning new things about it, I'll keep taking notes about it so that uh, if it didn't work effectively this time around, then hopefully next time around it would work. And it has led to a lot of interesting new work as well uh, because I remember the year that I told you about the lace mug pattern that I had introduced at Stitches, Uh, The plan that year was to do uh, texture with a woven pattern but my whole approach and everything, like the level of detail I was getting into, the, the pattern was not turning out for the woven structure as I wanted but something I learned from it and from the notes I had done before I created the lace pattern and that worked perfectly for that and it made a much better lace pattern than I would have earlier thought of but it was all because of taking those notes and making those details and I knew exactly what wouldn't work for a woven pattern. So when this year I introduced the woven pattern on my mask, I didn't have to redo that entire process again. I knew what didn't work. I knew I had to have a different approach from the very beginning. So I think it is uh, important for me and for my sanity to make things complicated for myself.
0: <laughs> well, it's your process. and you know, as I understand it, yeah.
1: you know, you've done
0: uh, three shows with us, stitches west, three, three wests in a row, eighteen, uh-huh. nineteen, and twenty. And every year you come out with a new thing, a new motif, a new, a new style, and nice. a new, a new fabric texture of some kind. And and I and I get the sense that you spend pretty much the whole year working on that.
1: Yes. And uh, that's what it is. It it takes a lot of time to create those patterns. Um, I don't, uh, you know, go and get a ready stamp or a commercial stamp or anything and just stamp my uh, pieces with all that work. I go through the trouble of understanding the structure of the texture I want to create. Uh, the Some textures are hand-carved. Some are stamped hand carved with stamps that i've made myself uh there is a lot of back and forth of making positives and then the negatives and then another positive and then maybe another negative and then combining the textures together then making them in a you know format that would work well for the shape of my mugs and so there is a lot of back and forth which keeps going on and At every stage in clay, what happens, especially if you're making positive and negatives of textures, you keep losing detail along the way. And uh, so it's like, you know, you could kind of be going through the process and then towards the end, even when you have got the texture on the final clay, you think it works, uh, you make your mug and you glaze it and then the glaze kind of takes over and your texture is not that, significant as you thought it would be and then you kind of need to start from scratch or at least go back a few steps so that kind of keeps happening throughout and so it takes me a while to come up with a new texture like I ha- I always have ideas and I'm always working on them uh, some patterns have taken several years to actually come uh, of, you know, to actual being what they are and um, I'll, and some patterns have been very quick because I was trying for something else and something else kind of happened and it worked even better than I thought so that's what happened but um, also I keep retiring all textures and patterns as well so there is that you know kind of like okay I have made enough of these pieces I don't want to make them again because the process was either too complicated I have to keep remaking my texture patterns again and again, even if it's the same one. So it's like, do I spend more time making an old pattern, or do I work towards something new? And I would rather work towards something new, because it's challenging, it's more exciting, and it's new work, so it kind of pushes me to work in that direction.
0: Well, that doesn't surprise me about you at all. I mean, and there's got to be you know, certain parts of your business that you just look at and go, yeah, that's just boring. I don't want to do that. I mean, lots of things like that. I mean, you are yeah. you're an artist. You you want to be creating and and working and working a problem, I'm sure. Um, so I imagine the day to day things like, um, you know, shipping and packing and all that kind of stuff is not your favorite thing in the world to do. It's,
1: it's necessary, but not your favorite. Yeah, uh, that's the one thing which I don't enjoy at all is packing orders. Um, packing individual pieces uh, is fine. That I'm okay with, you know. Then I'm making sales online for mugs and all those. I can pack, I can ship, that's fine. But when it comes to packing wholesale orders like for yarn shops and things like that, um, I it's it takes so much time to do. And as an artist, I feel that once I have made my mugs and, you know, glazed them, they are done. As a business person, I feel, uh, uh, you know, as far as I have marketed my work, I've got an order, and I've been paid for it, I feel I'm done. Now, when it comes time to pack it and ship it, that's where I go like, do I really have to do this also? <laughs> I've done kind of everything from start to finish. Now, I don't want to pack it. And uh, for for several years I've uh I've had an assistant who's helped me just do packing and since August of last year I haven't had anyone and I've been doing all the packing myself and I still go like oh if only for this thing I could get somebody I can clean the studio I can recycle my clay I said I can do every aspect of it king orders especially wholesale orders and you know, I have to ship like fifty mugs or something it, it Takes me a very long time to do that.
0: Well, I tell you what. If 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 I retire early from this job, can can I come just pack your orders if I can watch you work?
1: Yeah, sure, definitely. Okay. You okay. <laughs> it cannot so, be So uh, remotely, though, you'll have to cut your and to it. I know, I know. That's
0: okay. I, you know, Washington State, that's, I have relatives up in British Columbia, so it's close, you know. So, uh, yeah, yes. not, not the worst thing, not the worst thing in the world. So, uh, when we talked, you told me about an incident that happened, um, kind of a boon. Uh, our mutual friend, Franklin Habert, Habit, uh, featured one of your, uh, I think it was one of your mugs on one of his posts, and I understand that that had a direct effect
1: Yeah, this was uh, when I had just introduced my knit patterns on my work. And um, I kind of didn't know much about, you know, the fiber industry or, you know, how influenced everyone is or who people follow or, you know, who are the knitwear designers or anyone. Uh, I had met uh, Franklin Habit at uh, one of the men's knitting retreats. Um, I went there and, you know, I was talking to him because I had no idea who he was. In fact, when we were talking, I asked him what he did and he said, I draw cartoons is what he told me. I was <laughs> so like, okay, that's an interesting job. And But I kind of was fascinated because, you know, I saw him as an artist who Draws, but I didn't know that you know he had written books on you know his uh, drawings and um, and it was hilarious stuff. I purchased his book too, and uh, but I I didn't know about him at that time. Uh, I did at that retreat. Uh, the organizers had told me that you know hey you can get in some some of your pottery in here as well and you can you know, see if people are interested in purchasing it. And he was very fascinated with my work and he shared one of my posts, um, you know, uh, on his social media. And um, I remember I was at the retreat and my phone was just buzzing with orders and everything. And I was like, oh, something must be broken on Etsy because, you know, my phone has just been like buzzing with thing orders and that can't be right. And so I, Ignored it for a while, and then I went back and I saw no. There were actual orders coming in, and uh, I was wondering why that happened. And he told me he had some, you know, several several thousand followers, and he had shared my website. And I'm very grateful for that. And uh, he he's really amazing. And so many people I've met in the fiber industry, you know, they have been very sharing. Uh, you know, we talk about each other's work, uh, and I'm fascinated with how they do. I have taken classes with uh, several of the knitwear designers, like Franklin Habit itself, and he did the Madrona show. Uh, when I was in selling at Madrona, I used to take classes, and I every year I used to take at least one class of his, if I could get in, that is but uh, i've taken classes with him he also has a very uh, great way of approaching things so i like to see how other people whether it's designers or artists uh, work how do they approach their uh, you know their craft uh, what is their process what inspires them uh, what makes them make new work how do they uh you know, just create. Is I, I, just, I'm very fascinated with how people do that.
0: So, would you say that so far your experience within the industry, whether you're talking to consumers or whether you're talking to other uh, uh, wholesalers, dyers, artists, that it's pretty friendly and open and exchanging of ideas? Would you, would you find it just, you know, that for the most parts it's very civil and and uh, and almost warm and sharing is that been your experience for the most part?
1: Yes, for the most part, yes. And um, it's it's very much like I, I think many artistic fields are like that. Uh, the fiber industry even more because uh, you know you can uh, like even when I'm working with clay, uh, people can watch me live. They can see my entire process of how I make my mug. And I have, uh, you know, I've taught workshops as well as to how you make mugs, how I make my pieces, how I decorate. Uh, Just with the way every hand is different, your mug is not going to look exactly like mine. Uh, You know, you can put buttons on your mug. You can put a knit stitch pattern on your mug. You can do everything. It's not going to look like my mug. I will be able to tell my mug from the mug that you make. So I don't have that fear that oh everyone is now making mugs with buttons, and uh, even uh, when it comes to knitting and now that I'm dyeing fiber, uh, I have I I have not studied in school or you know um, learned about color theory or the color wheel and you know taken an actual course in fiber dyeing or anything. It's all Shared information from uh, so many people in the industry. I, I, you know, I put Instagram posts on. I was trying this low immersion dyeing, but the color broke, and this happened. There have been fiber dyers, professional fiber dyers, who sell fiber and yarn as their main business, who have approached me and has given me suggestions. Okay, next time try this. Next time try that. Next time do this, and uh, you know. They know, they are confident enough in their process that they know that no matter how much they tell me, just with the way I do things, my work is going to be different. They can give me the exact recipe and everything, it's still going to be different. So I like when uh, you know people are confident about their work, are comfortable with sharing, and They don't have any reservations as to what can I share and what I cannot share. Uh, It just shows that they know the amount of effort and work they have gone through creating what they do, and they know it's going to take several years for somebody to reproduce the exact same thing. (laughs) So they have no fear about that. And and that's the way I like to approach it, too, because um, even if you do share as much as you can, you know... You're kind of already on to the next thing. It's new for you, uh, and it's going to be a while till everyone is catching up on that. So, uh, I think sharing is the most amazing thing. Uh, it just makes everything so much better, and it improves your knowledge. You know, you learn more things by just talking about it. Well, and I've
0: I've seen that even with your. Uh with your live videos. You you I mean, you you share a lot to everybody. I mean this is not, you know, watch me because you're talking about the process. And I and I love that. You know, besides, you know, interacting the way you do with various people, where do you find your inspiration in?
1: Um, my inspiration I find it everywhere. Uh you know it's so hard to pinpoint as to what like you know people I, I like how people approach things where they say that oh I get inspired by nature I'm like you know how big nature is it's like it's huge <laughs> it's, it's like everywhere around you is nature it's like uh, I cannot pinpoint for me like I know my influence so far for the clay work has been so much fabric related that I can just like any kind of fabric I look at, whether it's printed, embroidered, knitted, woven, anything, uh, if I want to create that look, in you know, it's uh, it's very clear cut for me that when I do clay work, the not just the surface decoration, even the hand building technique, if you look at it, it's a very uh, fabric approach. Uh, it's like taking yardage, cutting up templates seaming them together, adding buttons. It's like making clothing, but I'm just doing it in clay. And uh, so for clay work, I know the inspiration is so much fabric-related. And it's not just texture. It's also hand-building technique. Uh, Even, like, if I'm creating certain shapes in place, how do I dart it, you know, making certain curves, or just like how you would make a fitting blouse for somebody. And, um, and but now when I'm now playing around with fiber and color, uh, I'm kind of looking for what is it that inspires me. I know the colors are still very fabric-related for me, especially Indian colors, the colors that you see in Indian weddings, uh and the textures, that is very fascinating to me. I'm still working towards as to how that is translating it into fiber for me. I don't know yet. And also, I have also noticed that for some reason, at least currently what I'm noticing is whenever I'm doing fiber work or if I'm making some yarn or knitting a piece or weaving something, uh, I find the inspirational piece after I've finished my project. <laughs> that I see that all oh, the colors were matching this particular Bollywood song that I saw or something, and uh, I've been told, I've discussed this with some other indie dyers of mine and, you know, other artists, and they are like... Uh, it's not necessary that you have the inspiration first and then you work towards it it's always subconsciously in you and then you just create and you just make the connection later on that oh so this is what i was you know it was there at the back of my head and it's probably what influenced me to create this and so so even if you look at my approach uh Towards clay work throughout, or whatever I've been doing, like my uh, baking cakes, then you would imagine that that has no influence on my work. But the surface decoration is what fascinated me about me decorating those cakes back then. Even currently in clay, surface decoration is the biggest plus point for me. So no matter what kind of aspect you know you have in life, whatever influences you or whatever you want to do, you just go ahead and do it. Because at some point in life, it's going to influence your work further. So hopefully for the better. But uh, you just kind of need to dive in rather than really focus on, I'm going to do this only if it influences my work. Uh, I'm kind of the person who says, just do it if you enjoy doing it and uh if you do enjoy doing it at some point it's going to reflect in your work as a positive thing so just keep doing what you like to do
0: well you know and i know that you're working on these things in, in an experiment with color and and fiber and and uh, you know going you know keeping those spreadsheets up you got to keep those spreadsheets up that's always important too yeah <laughs> but, but but you know i from, from i read your article you know and one of the things i keep thinking at some point somebody's got to offer you to do a book any thoughts about a book in the near future about what you do in your process uh,
1: no currently no thoughts about it i i have been occasionally approached with you know either writing up an article or uh, very recently somebody approached me about writing a book about some my process of doing things and um I, i'm not saying no but at the same time it's like I've, I've not given it so much thought but someday yes because i know there are people who find it very fascinating uh the way i approach things uh so yeah, you know, why not write about it? I, if I like talking about it, I'm sure somebody would like reading about it. So it, it would be something fascinating to write about. The documentation is all there, so it just needs to be put together, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> lots of yeah. big,
0: beautiful color pictures, I'm sure, and I know you've got lots of those, too. Um, you know, before, we're coming down close to the end of this thing, and I, and I wanted to make sure that we talked about your uh, uh, Patreon site, um, so that people understand mm-hmm. that. Uh and, and it's important folks. Right now, uh so many of our of our artist friends, you know, they, they don't have the same gigs that they can do right now and and this is especially set up so we could support great artists uh like uh Charan. And uh can you tell tell us about your site?
1: Yeah, so uh the Patreon site I I didn't have it before. It's, uh, uh, you know, the current day and stages uh, days are such that uh, most of my retail shows, not most, actually, all of my retail shows this year have been canceled. Uh, and the last one was supposed to be in October and they just sent their email as well that they are canceling that. And I understand, you know, the circumstances under which everyone is under pressure and making those decisions whether to keep shows or not. And, uh, you know, even if a show told me that, no, we are having the show, I do wonder if uh, people are comfortable to go out in public and visit these shows. So this definitely puts a big dent on the income uh, which comes from retail shows. Like I said, I do wholesale, I do retail, and I do my online sales. But right now, even wholesale is down because yarn shops aren't open right now. Uh, or, you know, they are very limited. And so it really comes down to uh, my online business. And uh, so, you know, there few sales happen here and there, but it's not the same as doing a retail show. Uh, The Patreon site is uh, another way you can support an artist because I understand that not everyone needs to, uh, you know, purchase a mug of mine to show their support. You know, there are some people go, like, I have, like, all mug patterns of yours in all different colors already. (laughs) Like, how many more mugs? I need a new kitchen before I can have another mug. And I completely understand that. So... Uh, You know, you can support artists like me or other artists, you know, who have Patreon sites or Ko-Fi and there are several other platforms like that where you can give them monthly $5 a month or $10 or $20 or something, you know, like I have different levels on my Patreon site where uh, for $5 you can watch all my live feeds and, you know, you get notifications on when I go live. At different levels, uh, I'm working on some uh, fine art projects where it's going to bring my inspiration of fiber and clay together. And uh, it's uh, it's I don't have an exact plan as to how that is going to happen. You're going to actually join me throughout the process. Uh, that is at the highest level at my Patreon. I think that's 20 or $30 a month. But uh, you get to be part of my process. You get to be inside my brain and maybe even make suggestions when I'm stuck as to how do I approach, how do I go ahead. But um, that's what uh, that's one way you can support your favorite artists. Uh, there are levels in which, you know, where you can get first dibs on the new pattern I create. I am working towards a new mug texture, which is going to come out later this year. Uh, so I'm trying to do whatever I can uh, to keep my online business at least going on. And uh, the Patreon is just another way that people can support their favorite artists um, and uh, other small businesses, you know. We kind of need to support each other so that we come out of this pandemic in a positive way and everyone is all excited to be out in public again. But till this time is going on, we still need to stay in business and keep things moving.
0: Well, I agree. And, you know, again, our friend Franklin has uh, a Patreon site as himself. It's, uh, you know, it's almost essential right now. Um, But we will move on from that. We're coming down close to the end. Uh, Let's make sure we do a real quick check. Is there anything that we didn't talk about
1: that we should have at this point? Um, No, I think we covered up quite a lot. We can just write a book about this and I think I'm done. (laughs) Okay, we'll do that we'll just transfer okay well
0: okay so, so two last questions for you in this troubled time what advice can you mm-hmm. give the world
1: uh, I one thing for sure is you know there is this one approach which people think and I have been told that as well and I have been hard on myself for that where people say that okay now you have this time for yourself make something new learn a new skill uh you know uh check off everything on your to do list and be creative and do this, but it is also very unsettling time because you know you don't know where things are headed um, it's uh I said be easy on yourself and i'm I'm saying this as advice to others. I really need to listen to myself as well uh like things are uh slow or you're not getting inspired to do something, uh, don't be too hard on yourself because these are a little tough times right now. So uh, definitely work, be in the moment, and enjoy what you're doing right now. Uh, Pick projects which make you happy. Uh, don't be like, oh, I have to complete this blanket during this time because, you know, it's been going on for three years. Finally, we are in this pandemic. Now I have to finish knitting this blanket. If you're not enjoying knitting that blanket, don't knit that blanket. If it makes you happy picking up a new project, go pick up that new project. Don't, uh, you know, push yourself to get certain things done or whatever. Do what uh, feels good to you right now. And uh, that's, that's the thing which I can say, uh, really. Uh, and like I said, I need to listen to that myself too because I do, uh, I'll have good days and I'll have bad days where I feel like I don't feel like doing anything or I feel like I'm not accomplishing as much as I would like to accomplish during this time. And uh, then I have to keep correcting myself. I said, it's fine if you don't accomplish everything that you think you should do what feels good right now and keep moving on.
0: That's very good advice. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, I, I sort of feel the same way. Uh, there are times where you trying to push it or feeling like there's pressure that you have to do something, you know, when you're just not up for it. Yeah. It's, it's just not going to work anyway. So and I'm just making you feel more frustrated. I think trying to cope with frustration and trying to keep that a calm going so that, you know, along the way, we're not biting the heads off of people we run into in the grocery store with our masks on or something like that. That's also a good thing to do. Find a lower gear, folks, and uh, and, uh, be good to yourselves. A little little self-pampering won't hurt hurt anybody. Um, Okay, well, that's great. Okay, so last question, last question, and I gave you a warning at the beginning of the show so you could think about it. Do you have anyone you want to thank or make a shout out to?
1: Uh, shout out to i would like to shout out to all my mentors actually whether it's been in clay uh my friend uh who I also call my other mom uh, ginger steel from insomnia pottery uh, she's been a, a great influence on my ceramic work um in the fiber world uh, there is uh nicole frost from frost yarn Um, There's Alana Wilcox, who I mentioned about uh, regarding her complicated way of approaching color and dye. Um, There is uh, all those uh, indie dyers, you know, who are all doing live videos these days. Um, uh, Sarah Iyer uh, and there's Jazz Turtle, who's uh, Esther Rogers, who's doing amazing spinning and Zoom meetings on making art yarn. Susie Brown from Tiny Fiber Studio who's having all her magazines are online and you can, it's such a fascinating magazine with amazing pictures of art yarn and techniques of how to do fiber prep. I'm like, everyone who is really, uh, you know, putting out their crafts online, sharing their process Uh, and uh, keeping it entertaining for all of us, right? Um, We are all in a pandemic. We are all looking for things to do, and it's nice when people are sharing their process and teaching you how to approach certain things, and you're actually getting occupied to do this and learning new skills. So big shout out to everyone who's sharing their process right now.
0: That is wonderful and uh, a great way to end the show. I I want to thank you so much for uh, you know being on the show. Uh, I know you had to wake up a little earlier being on the uh, on the, the west coast, you know. So eleven o'clock show is nine o'clock your time. But I'm, I'm sure you had been up for hours and hours already in the studio and and and, and uh, being creative. Yeah, it's right? my
1: dog who wakes me up. Yeah, my oh, cat. Gotcha. The- my dog wakes me up early in the morning, makes sure that you know I'm up and about early enough so i am a morning person, so it's fine oh yeah, okay
0: well, again, thank you so much for being here. thank you much for so much for sharing your story you. Um, you know i can't wait to see you again at a show one of these days, and uh with luck i you know well, not with luck if you're if you're interested um you know, we'll let a little time pass and maybe have you back on and talk about the new stuff
1: you're doing. Is that okay? Oh, yes, definitely. Thank you so much. This was really All fun right. well, chatting with you.
0: Well, you know, I, it, was a, it, it was a great... I knew that our Fiber Hooligan audience would love hearing about you, and I, I'm sure I'm going to get great feedback from this. So I'm going to wish you a, a wonderful uh, Memorial Day, and you have a, a great week this week. All right. You too, Benjamin. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Charon. Shakar, an amazing artisan and a very gracious person. I'm so pleased uh, he could find the time to be on the show. During the show, we talked a lot about a lot of things, including some websites and resources. And we're going to put all that information and those links online in the show notes on FiberHooligan.com within the next day or so. Okay, next Monday, my guest will be Heavenly Bressner. Heavenly Bressner, Bresser, not Bressner. Heavenly Bresser. Heavenly Bresser is a self-taught, well-rounded fiber artist from Chicago. She has over 10 years of experience with crochet and knitting, but also loves dyeing fibers, hand spinning, weaving, and repairing spinning wheels. Working from fleece to project is one of her favorite things to do. Her passion for fiber arts and the joy of seeing others grow in their craft is part of her motivation as an instructor. Heavenly's goal is to uplift, inspire, and encourage those around her and challenge them to think outside the box and to do the things they never imagined they could be that could be done. Outside of her fiber adventures, she her time is spent caring for her husband, two young boys, and Morky and a Morky named Samson. Heavenly is a wonderful instructor and designer. Uh, she also has a weakness for spinning wheels in need of adoption and care, which we will talk about on the the new show. Heavenly is also one of the kindest, and most giving people I've ever met, and I really think you're going to see that in the interview. I'm so pleased that she will be able to join us next week. Please put this on your calendars. It should be a great show. I also want to make sure that you know that I'm eager to hear from you. You can email me questions, recommendations, critiques, and feedback at fiberhooligan at gmail.com, and that includes suggestions for guests or cool things you'd like me to highlight on the show. I don't promise to respond to every email or message, but I do promise to do my best to read them all. If you ask a really great question or have an inspired idea, I may even read your email on the podcast. And in that spirit, I had two communications this weekend, so we'll give them both a shout-out. I want to thank Sherry Johnson, a.k.a. Spinning Buddy, for your email. Uh, I do appreciate your feedback, and yes, I'm working on the uh, increasing the volume overall for the show. I think you'll find it was a bit better this week, but if you have more feedback, like it more lo- needs to be louder, let me know. I'd like to thank Duke, a.k.a. thank you for your email and your encouragement. Uh, it was very sweet, and I really appreciated the things you had to say. I'd like to thank my guest, Sharon, for being on the show today. I'd like to thank the XRX and Stitches crew for encouraging me to start this podcast again. I'd like to thank my partners, David, Elaine, and Alexis, for their support. I'd like to thank my dear wife, Krista, for always believing in me. I'd like to thank Libby Butler-Gluck for all of her encouragement and help. And today, I'd like to send out an extra shout-out to Romy Hill. Uh, Thank you for your very kind note. It meant a lot. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Well, that's our show, Fiber Hooligans. As we slide on out of here today, I would like to wish you all a glorious week. Remember, the only thing better than being creative is being kind to each other. The good news, you can do both. Thank you for spending this time with us. I hope you'll join us, me and my special guest, Heavenly Brester, next week on another edition of Fiber Hooligans.